Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now, here he is, the Peabody Award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Great America Show, and thank you for being with us. The entire aware world, of course, is focused on Ukraine. Vladimir Putin ordered his forces to invade Ukraine, and they did so in dramatic fashion as the world watched yesterday. The world is still watching, as it will be for days and weeks and more to come. Russian tanks, armored personnel carriers, mobile cannon, rocket launchers, all rolling down the Ukrainian highways and streets. Russian attack jets and cruise missiles and rockets hitting targets in at least two dozen cities in a highly coordinated attack. It appears to be at this stage of the fighting unstoppable, given the Russian military's far superior air power and weaponry and obviously highly trained troops. The strikes appear to be designed by the Russians to limit collateral damage and civilian casualties, though there will be many, inevitably, as powerful warheads and rockets explode, and we won't likely know the extent of the damage and casualties for days, perhaps weeks. The European response to the Russian invasion to this point has been muted, probably what we should have expected from a continent of nations that has relied on the United States for more than three quarters of a century for their national security. For its part, the United Nations is not muted. It's inert. It's irrelevant. And not only because it's Russia's monthly turn to have its head of delegation serve as president of the Security Council. There seems to be resigned acceptance on the Europeans' part to the invasion and the likely outcome. None of the usual bellicosity at the U.N., no sanctimonious condemnations, and clearly no broad appetite among the Europeans for war. The United States is hardly more vigorous in its reaction. President Biden's rhetoric has been the harshest, while Congress, for the most part, is subdued, and few corporate media outlets are demanding America defend luckless Ukraine. The obvious hesitation, in part at least, because our president is hardly what could be called an ideal leader when national security threats reach from Moscow to Beijing. Putin's timing has, in my view, been ideal to realize his objectives to win the day militarily. Putin has caught the Western world all but leaderless and certainly flat-footed, despite his many signals of his intent. What is Putin's objective? How far will Putin go? What happens next? To answer those questions, we'll be talking with several guests today with a variety of perspectives on what is obviously a rapidly developing story in Ukraine and a quickly changing European and world order. We begin with Colonel Douglas McGregor, 
Colonel McGregor is a decorated combat veteran. He's author of five books and a former advisor to the Secretary of Defense in the Trump administration. Colonel, great to have you here. Thanks for being with us. Your assessment, if you will, of the Russian invasion militarily. Yes, it's uh, it's been thus far, from all appearances, a very professionally uh, planned and executed operation by the Russians. And it's really a tribute to the massive reform and reorganization process that uh, the Russian army went through under Putin over the last 20 years. And I, I think that's that's merits attention, because this army is very different from the Soviet army, both organizationally and in terms of the quality of its personnel, bears no resemblance to the old Soviet force. But he's only got an army of a little bit over 400,000. It's actually smaller than ours. But it punches well above its weight because of the way it's been reorganized and, and re-equipped. Now, they've moved in uh, from three directions, from the north, out of Belarusia, down into the direction of Kiev, which is not far from the Russian border. From the east, from the Russian border, across uh, eastern Ukraine to the Dnieper River, and from Crimea down into uh, the coastal area and ostensibly on the road to Odessa. So what he's effectively done is that he's moved his forces into those areas of Ukraine that were never Ukrainian. All of those areas are historically part of Russia, and before they became part of Russia, they were part of the Mongol Khanate in Crimea. And uh, I've recently learned that supposedly, I haven't been able to confirm this, uh, Zelensky was sent uh, an ultimatum by uh, Putin telling him, look, if you'll cede these territories to us right now, I will suspend the operation. But if you don't, then I will eventually cross the Dnieper River and I'll roll up what is really historic Ukraine all the way to the Polish border. So this has been very sudden, but very professional and very effective. Very little damage, frankly. Uh, lots of cruise missiles striking uh, airfields and installations, but no damage to the power grid, no damage to communications in Ukraine, uh, roads, bridges, things like that. Uh, very limited use of firepower only to destroy forces that were ostensibly resisting their advance. And I think that's important because it's clear he doesn't want to destroy much in the country. He'd like to capture as much of it as possible intact. And much of it is uh, industrial. Much of it is very important, uh, obviously, to Ukraine's economy. And if he succeeds in annexing those territories uh, that you just uh, laid out, uh, that will be an immense boost to the Russian economy as well if they are assimilated, annexed and assimilated uh, into Russia, correct? Well, he needs, he needs Russians. Uh, he doesn't have very many. The birth rate has fallen quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Non-Russians, uh, particularly Central Asians, Mongol Turk Turkic people, those people are reproducing much more rapidly than the Russians. So he's anxious to add the people there. As far as the economic boost, yes, there'll be something of a boost, but a lot of the equipment is old, needs to be modernized. But there's something else people lose sight of. It's very important, and that is that there's an immense amount of oil and gas under the Donbass all the way down to Crimea and then just off the coast of the Black Sea. In fact, they think there may be the largest natural gas deposits in Europe outside of Norway. So that's, that's no small uh, matter. But again, uh, I think we need to go back and, and look at the previous 25 years where 
a series of Russian governments, and then ultimately President Putin has repeatedly raised the issue of no NATO expansion right. uh, beyond beyond its current limits. And, and he's always said he would not tolerate the presence of U.S. forces, missiles, foreign forces in eastern Ukraine uh, in a position to essentially reach Moscow in minutes if they chose to do so. And we ignored him. We refused to listen to him. We said, no, we'll talk about arms control. We'll talk about this, that, or the next thing. But we will not discuss uh, making Ukraine a non-NATO country, effectively offering it neutrality or some other status as opposed to being a member of NATO. And I think he finally said enough's enough. His armed forces were ready, and he's acting. So no one should be surprised. But, you know, Lou, our diplomacy is very often a dialogue of the deaf. We, we don't listen to other people. Were you surprised at apparently the, the precision of the forces and the attacks, including cruise missiles and, and the bombing runs that were made uh, and uh, uh, to other uh, to also rocket launches? Uh, are you surprised that they were uh, at least trying to be uh, uh, to avoid collateral damage? And not really, simply because he knows that the people that he's up against are Orthodox Christian Slavs, much like the Russians. And he also knows that the majority of the people in the areas where he's currently operating are really Russian. They may live inside Ukraine, but they're effectively Russians. He's not interested in killing them. Yes, he's not interested in killing them. That makes perfect sense. Uh, it's good to see this because we would never have seen that under the Soviets. They, they could have cared less whom they killed. So I think that distinguishes what we're seeing from the past. And again, it's a small, much smaller force. About half of it is professional. The other half are draftees. And they're very well trained. I mean, I, I've watched the film footage of them at the railheads, loading and offloading equipment, setting up positions. Uh, their, their uniforms, their gear, everything is in excellent condition. They behave like professional soldiers. And, you know, a friend of mine who's in the Army said to me, he said, they've done everything so quickly. He said, we'd have barely gotten out of the motor pool with the woke Army we have now. <laughs> they, the woke Army that we have, that's been a, one of the criticisms of uh, this uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, the the Joint Chiefs of Staff and and uh, Milley, uh, General Milley, uh, reaching out to the Russians and they wouldn't return his call. The Chinese were at least were nice enough to to take his call. This is a new role. Well, the Chinese for our, take everything they could get <laughs> and, and have, but this is uh, really quite a new posture on the part of a an American general, is it not? And he's, he, he keeps his job instead of being fired. Uh, what yeah, do you make of it? He's, he's deeply disappointing. And uh, I, I can't understand most of what he does and says uh, they're irrelevant. I mean, the first thing that you notice about the Russian force, it's all overwhelmingly young men between the ages of 18 and 30. Gosh, what a surprise. That's what armies rest upon in terms of a foundation. That's what makes up armies. Young, athletic, intelligent, vigorous men uh, who are anxious to close with and destroy the enemy. Uh, this uh, this man, Millie, seems to be from, uh, I don't know, the, the planet Venus or somewhere else. He has very strange views on all of that. And the military, as you know, 
So it's a very different environment from civilian life. In civilian life, individual pr- preferences and priorities are very, very important, and we understand that. But in the military, we as individuals uh, are not irrelevant, but we only really become significant when we become part of a larger formation. Right. And that that requires a whole different mindset. The Russians have that mindset. They understand that, and we're seeing that in, in action. Uh, we're in a lot of trouble in terms of our military, and all you have to do is look at some of the people that are getting off aircraft uh, and then milling around in uh, Poland. They don't look good. A lot of them are overweight. Uh, we've gotten sloppy, and we have a leadership that has become, I think, arrogant insofar as its ability to dominate weak uh, opponents without armies, without air forces, without air defenses. And they've forgotten that uh, real war consists of serious professional combat soldiers. So we're, you know, in that, at least in that sense, perhaps we're getting a wake-up call. I don't know. But we ought to also ask where all the trillions of dollars that we've been spending on defense yeah. have been going, because we're clearly in no position right now to take on a force like the Russian army. It's, it's to me, it's just staggering when I, I hear Vladimir Putin threaten us with hypersonic missiles. When we had hypersonic missiles, we were with, along with, by the way, the, the Russians, and I think you know this, uh, the developers, the, the inventors of hypersonic missiles. Going back uh, into the late 80s and 90s, we had them, DARPA had them on the, uh, on the grid ready to go. Uh, it, ready to go in the sense of move them to manufacture and to, to yeah, yeah. ultimately deployment. We set them aside. And meanwhile, the Chinese oh. picked up the plan somewhere and the, and the Soviets uh, who possessed the plants left them around for the Russians. And guess what? Both of them have deployed hypersonic missiles in the United States. We had Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense, calling a gathering of the industrial com- military industrial complex to say, we really need these. Could you move it along, please? It's outrageous. Yeah. Well, your Pershing two missile that we eliminated as a result of the intermediate nuclear force treaty was mm-hmm. hypersonic. Right. And, uh, you know, developing and fielding what I would call the Pershing three and improved version of that is very easy. Perhaps uh, there's a there's a way to approach all of this if we're willing to talk to uh, the Russians. The problem is that for the moment, I think uh, President Putin has decided that he's not going to bother with us. I think he's written off uh, this administration as uh, essentially unapproachable, permanently hostile. There's no willingness to consider his point of view or any anything that he says. And again, that's why I mentioned the dialogue of the deaf. When normally, if you, diplomacy consists of two sides. One side has one opinion, the other side has a different. And you try to find common ground, you work your way through it. Certainly our positions when Reagan and Gorbachev were alive in the 1980s were infinitely further apart than they are today with this, this Russia. This Russia is not the Soviet Union. And that's the biggest problem I think we've got with it. We don't understand that this... Russia has far more in common with Tsarist Russia, which was a religious, uh, orthodox Christian, and culturally sensitive to its Russian national identity. Uh, there's, there's so many similarities between, frankly, Putin's behavior and the behavior of s- several czars, it's, it's hard to fathom. 
And I think he genuinely cares about his country. This is not some, some wild-eyed, crazy person who wants to put millions of lives at risk. I mean, he, he was approached a few years ago at a conference uh, in Riga, uh, in uh, Latvia, that he attended. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, what about, would you use nuclear weapons? And so we said, don't be ridiculous. If I tried to use a nuclear weapon uh, in this area, whatever happened to Riga, to Latvia, to Lithuania, Estonia, would happen to the people on the other side of the border in Russia. Right. In other words, when you start using nuclear weapons, there's nothing clean or precise about them. By the way, the prevailing winds blow west to east. So the fallout goes in the direction of Russia. Bottom line is we're not going to nuke each other. That's not going to happen. Right. And there, there won't be any massive... Russian offensive against the West, but the Russians demand that they that somebody listen to them and their concerns and their interests. Now, yeah. when when Trump was in office, to his credit, I think Lou, he tried very hard to reach out and understand Putin and the Russians. The problem was that Donald Trump was surrounded by people who did everything they possibly could to subvert that effort. So here we are. Uh, who was the chief uh, subversive in that group, would you say? Oh, I think Pompeo, uh, along with the series uh, Bolton and his predecessor, McMaster. All of these people were incurably hostile to the notion that we could have any relationship with Russia other than a, a hostile relationship. Yeah. And I know it, that the president's view was, look, we may never be friends, but there's no reason for us to be enemies. We We share a number of interests, and that's where we need to begin to work. And I thought he was right. Yeah. And, and to pretend that uh, Russia, that there is some great divide between Russia and Europe, I think is a mistake as well, uh, because culturally there is greater similarity than, well, it, it, there's enough of, of a bridge there that we should have chosen it. And I, and I was among those uh, who, who were uh, selected uh, by members of the first Bush administration to go into Moscow and to, uh, as uh, the Treasury Secretary and others were going through uh, Gosbank to, to look at what is happening as the Soviet Union was collapsing. This was, I believe, 1991. And uh, all the, the great promise was that we would have trade with Russia, that we would, uh, and I'm talking about the younger generation of, of Russians, uh, yes. would, you know, they had great hopes uh, for bringing, coming closer to the United States. And administration after administration uh, stepped away from that trade and that investment in Russia and bringing the two countries closer uh, and instead moved toward Beijing for crying out loud, uh, with some sort of silly idea that uh, we, we could convert them to uh, capital, market capitalism and uh, democracy. The, the madness of it all in policy terms is uh, overwhelming over the course of 30, 30 years. Well, you're 100% right, Lou. Uh, it's, it's discouraging. I know when I was still on active duty and uh, at the Supreme Headquarters of Light Powers Europe working for West Clark, that at that point, uh, we were trying very hard to work with the Russians. And it wasn't easy for them, frankly, because we were meddling in the Balkans. And that part right. of the world was very important to them. They liberated the Bulgarians, Romanians, and others from the Turks. Right. So they had a permanent interest in the, in the populations there. They were Orthodox Christians, Serbs, Bulgars, and so forth. But it was difficult for them, but they worked with us. And they, they worked hard with us to make make things successful. 
Uh, and we didn't really return the favor. We haven't reciprocated very much. They helped us when we went into Afghanistan enormously. They stood up this Northern Alliance. They equipped it. They fielded tanks for it. They gave us excellent intelligence. Uh, and after it was over, they, they asked us, how long are you going to be in Afghanistan? We said a year. And we know the rest of that story. Uh, we don't and that, know the and by the story. way, that, that, that year it would be the, it would have been the perfect time frame. Uh, because we had done, we had done what we needed to do in the course of that year. Oh, absolutely. And you know, the same, it was frankly true in Iraq that, uh, you removed mm -hmm. Saddam and his friends and, uh, you needed to put in another group to run it, but it was no place for us to remain. And I think as a result of having stayed in these places for so many years, we actually ruined our forces. You know, Genghis Khan used to say occupations turn soldiers into jailers. He was right. Uh, and an interesting uh, we way need to, put to avoid it. those things at all costs. Yeah, uh, especially this country. It's just not, it's not who we are in any way, culturally, right. uh, by nature. Uh, I, I want to turn to this, the, the prospects. Uh, what, Colonel, do you see uh, as a result? I know we're in early days, or in point of fact, early day uh, of this invasion uh, and all that uh, is to follow. But what do you see as the likely plan of Putin, the likely response of the West, and particularly the United States uh, and President Biden? Well, I think uh, we know Putin's plan, which is first and foremost, uh, seize eastern Ukraine and uh, the southern region that reaches out to Odessa and incorporate that as Russia, which makes sense historically. And he's argued that before, as, as his predecessors did. So that makes sense. Whether or not he moves on to the west toward the Polish border, I, I can't say. I hope not. And I hope some, some no, other arrangement can be made for that, uh, because I, I think it is useful just as he wants a buffer, uh, for us to have a buffer. And there's no reason why the rest of Ukraine could not be become a neutral state. And we can all agree that let's not garrison it, let's not station anybody there. And the place is an agricultural powerhouse, has some of the richest soil in the world, and left to, a, left to its own devices could be extraordinarily productive. Yeah. That's where I think we should focus. But on the Western side, I, I think you're going to watch as this thing called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and ultimately the EU all fall apart. Uh, what, what I find entertaining is the notion that somehow or another this is forcing cohesion on NATO. The huh. Germans have made it very clear they will not support excluding Russia from the SWIFT system. They're not going to throw the Russians out of the international financial system. Yeah. The they want to do system. business with the Russians. Right. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, they're not going to they're not going to throw the dirt in the Russians face and, and refuse to buy oil and gas from them. Their alternative is to do what in the short term, which is to turn to the Muslim world. Right. Why would you want to become completely dependent upon that if you're a German? Absolutely not. The Hungarians, the, the Czechs, the, you know, the Dutch, Belgians and, and others who are not in NATO, like the Austrians, they all will purchase that, that gas from Russia. And they do not feel threatened by the Russians. They don't feel that there's a, an imminent invasion. And there isn't, again, for the reasons I cited. The Russian economy is far too small. This is a, a great strain on the Russian economy. But Putin and his countrymen believe this is important, so they're going to do it. Yeah. But beyond that, there, there's no interest in going to war with the West. We need to accept that, uh, but we won't. But I think that's going to break up NATO. 
I think it's just going to, what did Henry James say? A sacred cow is never slain. He simply vanishes. Right. I think we're going to wake up and it's going to be gone. Well, this, this idea that uh, Ukraine would be partitioned, uh, that would be divided west and east, I, I don't think that the, there would be uh, obviously a, a great uh, excitement about that on the part of the, the Ukrainian government. But uh, as you say, I think that that would be a, a possibly for Europe a reasonable outcome because they're really going to have to contend with some issues that uh, has nothing to do with the United States when we're honest, I think, and straightforward about it. This is right. a European issue. It is a Russian issue, and it has to be resolved. But it has to be resolved in such a way that everyone uh, can acknowledge they uh, did their best, did the right thing, uh, with human life and dignity at the at the forefront. Exactly right. That's exactly right. And our real role in all of this from day one should have been as an honest broker between the two, not as the sponsor of hostility and hatred towards Russia. Uh, and that's been a terrible mistake on our part, and I'm afraid the Ukrainians are paying the price for it. And, and what do you expect Biden to do? Uh, do you trust his... <laughs> Do you trust his judgment? Uh, I think that laugh may have been a, a, a precursor to the answer. Uh, do you trust uh, his his uh, knowledge and his values and that of his advisors? Well, based on having watched him for a long time, as I'm sure you have, uh, Joe Biden was always the sort of get along, go along guy. He tended to move in the direction of, uh, you know, conventional wisdom and mainstream opinion. Uh, he's not going to buck anything. He's not going to challenge anything. But at this point, uh, it strikes me that he's become extremely rigid in his thinking. And he's adopted the, the radical extremist views of the, the left. It's disastrous. But, you know, that that is also the view of, as you know, the global the globalist elites. Mm -hmm. They want a different future for the world than the world wants for itself. The, yeah. You know, he's he is now playing their tune, which is no borders, no rule of law, no restrictions, nothing, uh, which threatens our society and threatens Western Europe. And of course, remember, that's a particular tune that uh, Putin has been absolutely unwilling to play. Uh, he's not going to throw open his borders and allow millions of uh, people from the Middle East and Africa and South Asia or anywhere else march into his country. And the people in Eastern Europe don't want it. But in Western Europe, they've already done it. They're paying a heavy price for it in terms of criminality and costs associated with welfare right. funding. So, I, you know, I, I just don't expect anything to happen with Biden other than he'll stand up there and repeat uh, these uh, rather insane views about what the United States should be and what the rest of the world is supposed to be. And if you don't agree with him, well, then you're a racist, a bigot, uh, you know, whatever. Go down the list. Uh, that, that's where we are now. The contest for the United States culturally uh, and, and societally uh, is to either become the world or let the world try to become us as we move forward uh, as the, the greatest constitutional republic in history, the greatest capitalist economy. Meanwhile, our greatest enemy uh, is uh, stage left, uh, and that is China. 
the the PLA has to be a, amused as as we are trying to contend with this. Uh, the CCP is laughing all the while. Uh, and, and meanwhile, going through and taking inventory of everything they've stolen from us for years uh, and the money that we have thrown at them uh, to allow us to be indolent, uh, to lose our spirit of ingenuity uh, and industry. Uh, it, it's well, a Lou, difficult... as, you, as, you, as you know, Lou, we didn't make it hard for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, your thoughts I, about... I watched you for so many years talk about the the elites in this country sell us out, you know, export our manufacturing base overseas and so forth. The Chinese, the greatest weapon the Chinese have at their disposal is money. And yep. the thing that drives far too much in, in Washington and too much of our society is greed. You've talked yep. about that for years. You were always right. Now here we sit. Regrettably, regrettably. Uh, Colonel, I hope you will come back soon and we can talk much more. Uh, because I'm, you're, I always learn something from you, and I know the audience uh, does as well and appreciate you uh, greatly. Uh, you get the final word on this broadcast, as all our guests do. Uh, but I want to say before that, thank you very much, Colonel McGregor. Well, Lou, thank you so much. And I think it's time to bring Lou Dobbs back to TV, at least for some <laughs> special from time to time, just as a, a good injection of a truth and objectivity, which is so much in demand and seems to be so rare. Colonel, thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I'll treasure that as a matter of fact. Uh, look forward to our next conversation. Colonel Douglas McGregor, thanks for being with us. And now a few items. We have reports that Ukraine's President Zelensky has been moved to the safety of a bunker, perhaps in Kiev but his location is not known. President Zelensky late yesterday said that Ukraine had suffered 137 military and civilian casualties. Russian spokesmen say their military achieved all their goals on day one, including the capture of the Chernobyl nuclear plant site. And now we turn to a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Congressman Greg Stubbe. He is also a member of the Judiciary Committee an Army veteran who served as an Airborne Infantry and Judge Advocate General Division Officer. Congressman Stubbe is critical of the conduct and the judgment of the Biden White House in dealing with Russia and Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Congressman, great to have you here. Welcome to The Great America Show. To begin, your reaction to the Russian invasion. Well, we all knew, especially in Congress, those of us that were paying attention to what was going on, that this was inevitably going to happen because of the weakness that we currently have in the White House. Uh, Putin had been telegraphing his positions. Troops were slowly uh, you know, coming across and, and, and gathering at the border. So we all knew at some point the actual invasion would occur. And what's, you have to go back in time to, to reason why he's doing what he's doing, and that's Putin. And it all starts with Afghanistan. When you see the, the leader of the free world basically give up to the Taliban, leave $80 billion worth of military equipment, as you and I are still talking, there are still Americans that are left in Afghanistan. And this government, our government, the White House is not doing anything to get them out. So the pretext is they now know how this White House, this Department of Defense and our leadership is going to react to foreign uh, aggression, going to react to things across the world. And then... Biden decides to repeal Trump-era sanctions on the Nord Stream 2, 
which opened up billions of dollars straight to the Kremlin for Moscow to be able to fund a lot of the things that he wanted to do. So they knew that there was weakness in the White House. When Trump was president, we had strength in, in power and our stances, and you would never see anything happen like this if Trump was still the president. But because of the things that have happened and the decisions that this White House has made, of course, they know that Russia knows that they're going to be able to get away with what they're doing. And it's, it's a very sad day for the citizens of Ukraine who are sitting by and helplessly watching the Russians invade while all of the NATO, all of the allies, all of Europe, all the United States that can actually do something about it aren't doing anything to help them. And even the rhetoric emanating from all of those sources you just mentioned is not particularly clever, crafted, or in any way uh, sincere, do you think? Well, and listen carefully to what Biden said today. We will do everything within the power of the United States to protect our NATO allies. Well, Ukraine is not a NATO, is not in NATO, which is one of the big things that Russia wanted to prevent from happening. So, of course, we'll stand with our NATO allies, which is, is completely not doing anything to help the Ukrainians. And, and now we're going to put in sanctions that the Biden administration repealed a year ago when Biden first got elected, he repealed the Trump era sanctions on Nord Stream two. And now you're putting them in place again. As soon as Putin started putting troops on the border of the Ukraine, if you wanted to send a message to him, that's when the time was to put economic sanctions on the Russian regime. And he didn't, and he's waiting for them to react. And at this point, um, Putin has already made deals with the Chinese. You know that any economic sanctions that are coming from the United States or other European allies, he's going to be buffered economically from the Chinese Communist Party. And he knows exactly. that. And he knows that the White House isn't going to do anything to stop him militarily. So why wouldn't he invade an area that they believe is part of Russia? You're exactly right. And these sanctions that the president is uh, applying uh, with stern face and stern rhetoric, uh, the effect of which will be to enrich Russia, uh, which uh, has uh, approximately half of its uh, of its exports, uh, as much as sixty percent uh, now, with the uh, the United States importing their oil. We're talking about sixty percent of their exports are crude oil, and therefore he's going to be a beneficiary of the very markets that have just surged as a result of his invasion of Ukraine. This is mindlessness on the part of the administration. And the cable news networks, I think, are awakening to this, but not yet to the point that they can uh, to actually say that out loud. But it's true. Of course, of course they won't do that. And of course, mainstream uh, media won't talk about the failures that this administration is doing. And all in order to buffer this, what you're seeing in, say, oil prices, all that Biden would have to do is reinstitute our own domestic production of oil that he shut down on day one, all of which he could do today. But he's not going to do that, which would buffer what's happening in Russia, and you would actually see prices decrease in the United States, but they don't have any intention on doing that. I thought something that was interesting was something that John Kerry said was, well, I hope that uh, Putin still plans to abide by his, you know, his climate goals. So this administration and the people in it are more concerned about their climate agenda than the lives of the Ukrainian people. A lot of people are very nervous about uh, having troops being uh, moved around by this particular commander in chief 
who is not, uh, he's not de demonstrated any talent uh, for leadership. And certainly uh, his uh, military leadership would be highly questionable. Well, and you're absolutely correct. And the, the powers of Congress as it's related to the military over the years has been drastically eroded over, and it's been Republican and Democrat, that have eroded the power of Congress to declare war, to control the purse strings as to where our military service members go. And, I, and there's been a group uh, of members that have, that have told the White House that they need to come to Congress to get a vote to right. support deployment of troops to Europe. That's not going to happen. And, and, and this Congress, this Democratic-led Congress by Nancy Pelosi, is not going to hold the Biden administration accountable. If we take the House back in November, which I, I think we will, then we'll be able to do those type of things. But unfortunately, over the years, the power of Congress as it relates to the military has been eroded. But Congress has the power to declare war. Congress holds the purse strings. And if we don't want troops to be in Poland, Congress should be making that determination and, and, and not allow any funding whatsoever to come from Congress that would allow for the troops to be deployed in Poland. Yeah, I, for the life of me, Congressman, I do not understand why this president keeps trying to get in front of Europe and NATO on the issue of the invasion. It is mindless. Uh, he has no plan. He has no basic concept or understanding, it appears, of uh, the motivations of Vladimir Putin and the historical imperative that drives their interest, the Russians' interest in Ukraine and surrounding uh, Eastern European countries. Yeah, and, and all that, that world leaders have to look to is the way that they handled Afghanistan. And if that, if that is how this administration and this Department of Defense, who quite frankly is more concerned about transgender rights in the military and vaccine mandates and wokeism and all of these things, equality in our military, instead of the safety and the security of the American people, which should be the focus of our military, instead of those things, all our world, other world leaders do have to do is look at how Afghanistan was handled and know that Biden is not going to do anything as it relates to Russia. And our Chinese, um, account, our Chinese adversaries, the Chinese Communist Party is watching this. And I can, I, I'm sure that they're eyeing up Taiwan as all of this is going on. The Iranians are watching all of this as all of this is going on and, and making their own decisions for the betterment of the decisions that they want to make, knowing that we have a White House that is weak, that's not going to make strong decisions and not going to take military action when necessary. And it's no accident that Xi Jinping today sent eight fighter jets and a reconnaissance, uh, uh, reconnaissance aircraft into the uh, air defense zone of Taiwan. He was sending a message loud and clear. And these messages are being sent to a president who to this point seems absolutely tone deaf on what are both uh, lines of demarcation on the part of the two most powerful despots in the world uh, and uh, a serious warning to the United States. Yeah, and that's going to increase. There's been, and this hasn't been widely reported, but there's been over 180 military sorties of Chinese aircraft into Taiwanian airspace. And what they're doing is they're probing and prodding to see what the Americans are going to do. And, and as you have seen, the Biden administration isn't going to do anything. And we have agreements to support Taiwan as it relates to any incursion of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think you're going to see Japan and Australia and some of these other countries realize that America and this White House and this Department of Defense aren't going to hold up to the agreements that they've had with some of these other countries. 
They're going to look at, at things like that happened in Ukraine, that happened in Afghanistan, and know that if China, if Chinese Communist Party invades Taiwan, there's nothing that this White House is going to do to stop them. And the Budapest uh, Memorandum in 1994 is a clear obligation uh, on the part of the United States uh, that was given in exchange for Ukrainian nuclear weapons that requires us to provide for their security. Uh, and we have uh, we've ignored it as well as dishonored it. Uh, your reaction? Well, that's an excellent point to make that I think a lot of people today don't realize that that agreement was in place. And if the Ukrainian government wouldn't have entered into that agreement with the United States, they right now would have nuclear power to be able to defend themselves. And Putin never would have stepped on the ground knowing that he would have gotten into a, a nuclear war with a neighboring country. And the fact that he, uh, his troops uh, have now taken possession of the Chernobyl a nuclear uh, power plant and uh, and environmental disaster that it is, uh, that is a very stark warning to all all of the Western countries, including the United States. Uh, it there's it's not an accident that he is now in charge of that. That is a looming threat. Should anyone decide uh, to take on Russia, do you not agree? Oh, absolutely, and and and. All of Europe is going to stand by and watch Putin do this. And Ukraine is only going to be the beginning of all of the area that once he takes Ukraine, he's going to move on to the next area like Belarus or some of these other areas where he feels like he can he can take over and watch NATO and the U.N. and all these other European countries just stand back and let him do it. As we're wrapping up here, Congressman, uh, your thoughts on what the future holds? What is the what are the the next developments? Well, unfortunately, we we have to pray for the Ameri or the Ukrainian people and hope that there are there are Americans there. Um, hopefully, our government won't leave the Americans that we had in Afghanistan behind, and we'll go in and get the, the the American citizens that we have in Ukraine out while all of this is going on. But given what this administration has done in Afghanistan, I don't have a lot of hope and comfort that that's going to happen. I saw an article just before this that um, there's there's not-for-profits and, and other organizations trying to go in and do missions to get our citizens out. So I think that's what you're going to see start to unfold because this administration is unwilling to do the things to protect American citizens caught in, in foreign lands that are in the middle of, of wartime. And I don't think this is the end we're going to see from Putin. And it's just the beginning of what now the Chinese Communist Party is going to do and what the Iranians are likely going to do. Many more tests to come. Congressman Snooby, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Yes, thanks. Congressman Greg Snooby. We turn now to Morgan Wright. He's a leading internationally respected expert on cyber warfare, cyber terrorism, and attacks. And in Ukraine, the Russians have launched many of those attacks. Great to have you here on The Great America Show, Morgan. Please tell us how sophisticated, how damaging these Russian cyber attacks are. Hey, Lou, great to be back with you, sir. Um, there are, what it's doing is these initial attacks, this is the new doctrine of warfare. It includes these hybrid cyber attacks that are the first phase. Before it used to be airborne, you know, jumping in, or you'd see something. Now it's the cyber attacks coming in first. 
And this initial part, Lou, which I firmly believe it was designed to do, was designed to disrupt things. It was designed to cause panic, make people think, because it's visible. It's something they could see, which was the website is down. I can't get to my money. There's no, they can't communicate with us. So that's part of a, while that's not as technical as some of the other stuff, it is very much part of a psychological operation to start instilling fear in the public, to creating panic. And then what they do is they're follow-on attacks, just like you have follow-on attacks with terrorists and other stuff. You've got the follow-on cyber attacks, which now the reporting is coming out. We've got now new sophisticated malware that is wiping the hard drives of devices. It is bypassing firewalls. It is attacking things internally. So this is the silent war. This is the unseen war that's going on right now. The DDoS attacks, the denial of service are the visible part. It's now the invisible part that's really going to wreak havoc on the ability to do command, control, and communicate for Ukraine right now. And nothing is more important right now to the survival of the Zelensky government, that is uh, Ukraine itself, than uh, his ability, I would think, to communicate with whatever forces form uh, the, uh, the uh, insurgency, the, the counter uh, to Russian uh, troops uh, as, as they penetrate uh, deeper into Ukraine and into the hearts of many of these cities. That's why in command and control, the first thing you go after is their ability to communicate and operate. If you can't do that, you can't affect, like you say, how can you get the message out? How do people know what to do? How do they know what countermeasures to take? What is the citizens, the citizens of Ukraine supposed to do if they can't hear from their president? How is he supposed to rally them? So this is very much, I mean, they're applying the same doctrine of warfare, which is take out command and control the physical sites, but also take out the virtual sites, the ability to put things up on a web page. And by the way, the other thing, Lou, I'd be very, very careful of. They did this in 2008 when they bombed Georgia. They rerouted internet traffic out of Georgia to fake web pages. It was fake news. That's where some of the original fake news really came from, was from the Russian operation in Georgia. And now, so you have to be very careful. Even if the pages come back up, we know that they've been building these uh, cloned web pages of government sites that they're loading up with malware. So if you go to them, you know, this is all part of the next phase of this, which is mm -hmm. you think it's a legitimate site. You're so craving information. You're willing to click on links and these links are loaded with malware. So people even have to be very careful about the links they're clicking on and what pages are up there. And are these the real legitimate pages of the Ukrainian government? And that uh, should be a, a clear clarion warning to everyone listening uh, uh, to us uh, that uh, do not fall into that trap. Uh, and pursue uh, into the dark uh, on the web uh, information. It is it is treacherous. Uh, by the way, I would never have thought of that, Morgan. Uh, and I have luckily not done that. I'm sure there are <laughs> a Which lot is why of people. You're one of the good like, guys and not Vladimir Putin, Lou. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, that's know, one but, of them. <laughs> but I'll take, I'll take any uh, differentiating uh, characteristic I can between uh, Putin and myself. Uh, it's, can you judge at this point how effective uh, the Russians have been in what you're referring to as the silent war the, and, and, of course, the visible war that is meant to intimidate and to terrorize uh, and, and cut communications? I think they've been fairly effective. Uh, you know, I don't think they're being as effective as what Putin had hoped they would be. And there's a one reason for it, or a couple reasons, I think. But one of them is, while Ukraine was not allowed to join NATO, they were not 
they were also not allowed to join uh, the NATO, uh, basically cybersecurity center of excellence, the defense uh, center, which is actually headquartered in Estonia, which Russia attacked a few uh -huh. years back, took the entire country offline, and they responded. They say, we're going to get good at this. So I think they're getting some tactics and some t tools you know, and technology from this cyber defense center uh, over in Estonia, part the NATO cyber defense center which is helping them respond to this. So I don't think Vlad is going to have the cakewalk he thought he was going to have, whether it's militarily um, or uh, virtually, you know, digitally right now. But make no mistake, they're good at what they do. They've had long-term plans. In fact, some of the stuff we're seeing out there um, where they're using domains of these companies to register these digital certificates. So you think it's the real stuff. You think it's the real software. Some of these things were registered months ago, which tells you about the foresight on the planning, how long back some of this planning to invade uh, was going on right. because they led with cyber warfare. So to do that, they had to get their cyber tools in place. And to do that, they had to start registering these domains several months ago. And I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Estonia a part of Eastern Europe, obviously, and uh, northernmost in that uh, part of, uh, of Europe, uh, the Baltics. It is very sophisticated and very advanced in its technology, its infrastructure, its uh, connectivity in all respects, is it not? They, wanted, they got religion, Lou. After this attack by Russia, they got religion, and they became, I would say, they are punching way above their weight for a country their size. Right. And that's one reason, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. That's one reason why NATO located that center there is because Estonia right. gets it and they are, they, you know, they, it's kind of like never again, not on our watch. They're not going to let that happen again. And that's why I think there's a lot of good stuff coming out of Estonia simply because uh, they were getting picked on by Russia and they decided, you know what, we're going to fight back in the way that we can. And they've done it digitally. Yeah. And Estonia has a population, I think, uh, of less than a few million people. I mean, it's not a, exactly a, 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 a populous uh, urban 1. center. 1.331 million ah. people. I just looked it up. <laughs> Good for you. I, if I'd known you were going to bring it up, I would have. Uh, <laughs> the The fact of the matter is uh, that that's encouraging because all of Eastern Europe is now threatened by the presence of Russian troops who've uh, invaded uh, uh, Ukraine. I, I cannot, for the life of me, understand at this juncture why NATO, uh, why the European Union has been so muted in its response. Uh, and I do, like everyone else now, uh, have great concerns for their ability to defend themselves and, uh, and to understand Putin's ultimate goals. Uh, which looked to me to have, uh, if I may put it this way, no borders in front of them. Uh, I think he yearns for the days of uh, the Soviet Union and all their satellite states where they had, they were, uh, they were between us and them, we were the only world powers, global uh, superpowers. So, but, you know, but they have, it takes time to do that, right? So a lot of the territory they lost, they have to go back if, after it. And one of the ways they do that is with these new tools that have been developed you know, over the last 20 years, you know, 30 years in cyberspace. And that's why, Lou, cyberspace now is the fifth domain of warfare. You've got sea, air, land, space, and cyberspace. It is a domain of war. Make no mistake, things are happening. People are dying. And I'm not saying because of the cyber attack. They're dying because the cyber attacks are uh, interfering with command and control. You can't get orders out. You don't have visibility. You've lost your eyes and ears. That is causing the deaths of Ukrainians. So this attack, this cyber attack, 
is directly linked to the safety and security of the Ukrainian people. And I'm telling you, every time you interfere with communications, every time you interfere with emergency services, every time you interfere with their intelligence, their radar systems, all of these things, you know, over cyber, um, it directly contributes to the deaths of Ukrainian citizens. Now, we're getting reports that the computers, Ukrainian computers, uh, there have been hit by data wiping software, just exactly as you uh, described. Uh, and this is uh, just moments ago from Reuters. Uh, the, you know, again, uh, this is a, a wholesale attack. Uh, I, I don't know if it's a complete, a complete invasion. Russians mean to take over every aspect of Ukraine, it appears at this point. Uh, they have done it through four of those five domains. They've done it through sea, they've done it through air, they've done it through land, and they've done it through cyberspace right now. So uh, this is a pretty holistic type of invasion to where they're bringing all of their tools um, in, in to bear. And actually, one thing I would add to, it looks like um, that some of the targets also are including Latvia and Lithuania and include finance, government contractors. So um, yeah, this what he's done is he's kind of cast a wide net. He's going after things that may be support mechanisms as well for Ukraine, especially financially and communication-wise. Um, and but the, these people outside the country also have presence presence inside Ukraine. So Vladimir is attacking those people who have support capacities and other countries and contractors who are supporting Ukraine. They're being targeted too, which should tell you that he perceives anybody who supports Ukraine as a threat. That includes the United States. That includes the UK. Germany is high on his list because they canceled the Nord Stream 2, at least for now. Let's hope they stick right. with it. So um, all of these people, anybody who commits a slight against uh, Vladimir, and he perceives almost everything as a slight, um, becomes uh, the crosshairs in his uh, cyber targeting system. But we'll be very careful as we talk about his invasion. What should we call it? Not an invasion, certainly, because we don't want to. Uh, well, it's a mostly it's a mostly peaceful invasion. <laughs> well, I'm just talking about I've heard a number of networks <laughs> today referring to uh, what Vladimir Putin called his special military operation. Uh, my Lord, uh, to see networks uh, adjusting their language. Uh, has been a little bizarre. This is an out-and-out out invasion. There is no question about it, unprovoked, uh, without any justification whatsoever, other than the other domain of war, which is information and disinformation warfare, psychological operations, uh, is, is an element. Uh, and it is, it's raging even as his uh, tanks and his uh, jets and cruise missiles are, are hitting targets in Ukraine. Uh, that information warfare is being carried out globally, isn't it? Well, it's also being used to target Ukrainian soldiers. They were sending text messages, SMS messages to their phones saying, hey, you guys can't win. Give it up. You know, now we know what your phones are. You know, it also look, look, Lou, look how we acted in the United States after Colonial Pipeline. It was only shut down for five days. We did not have a fuel shortage. People thought we had a fuel shortage and they acted like that. What we just had was a supply issue, a distribution issue. There was no supply. There was no issue with the amount of oil that we had available to make gasoline and do stuff. But everybody got into panic mode. If you can do this after two or three days, imagine what you can do after a month. Look, right. there's an old theory of war. If you want to bring a nation to its knees, you go after power and water. Those are the two fundamental blocks, part of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. People want safety. They need their needs met. And if you take away the ability to meet those needs, you can induce panic 
And this is how we reacted to a perceived shortage. Imagine the Ukrainian people having to deal with that on top of now you've got bombs coming down and bullets flying and explosions. Uh, the psych- Don't underestimate the ability of the psychological aspect of this and how cyber adds to it along with the kinetic stuff. You know, there is a political issue in this that uh, no one wants to discuss in this country, and that is the capacity of our president to be a wartime commander-in-chief. Uh, it is on the minds of people who will not acknowledge it. It is uh, a, a great concern. Uh, our military uh, is also another concern because they have been uh, the current uh, Secretary of Defense, the current uh, Joint uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Milley, has done what he did with China. Uh, there is something wrong with the the principal military advisor to the president of the United States because he feels uh, absolutely uh, uh, authorized uh, and permitted to talk to the Chinese about strikes and to make assurances to them. He has tried to call the Russians in the midst of this I this man is is deeply concerning to me. I will say that and speak only for myself. But right now we have a leadership that is untested uh, and whose experience goes back to the Obama administration and uh, arguably that administration and its weakness and failure to enforce red lines, whether they be in Syria or whether they be in uh, Eastern Europe uh, and allowing uh, uh, Russia to take Crimea without without any kind of consequence. Yeah, uh, Gary Oldman, when he played Winston Churchill in the movie, he used a line which I think is a maybe a Chinese proverb, uh, ironically enough. But it said basically, "You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth." Uh, you know, and wh- right. when we allow ourselves to be um, compromised uh, and uh, co-opted by major players like China, like Russia. First of all, you, there is no reasoning with Vladimir Putin. He's going to do what he wants to do. And Lou, this leads exactly. me to the point. Here's the real problem. The problem isn't the problem. The problem isn't even the way we think about the problem. The real problem is the way our adversaries think about the problem. We're trying to instill our value-making system, our the way that we look at the problem, and hope that Vladimir uh, comports to that. Instead, we're not looking at it through the way he does. And that's the failure of leadership. That's the failure of having the big picture after 9-11. It was a failure of imagination failure of communication. We are failing to look at the way that Xi Jinping looks at the problem, the way that Vladimir Putin looks at the problem. That's the only thing that matters. That's how they're going to react is based upon the way they view the problem. Do you think they care um, who's in the White House? Uh, you know, then maybe they're glad Biden's in, maybe they're glad Trump's not. It, to, but oh, in the long term, Xi Jinping doesn't care. Putin doesn't mm-hmm. care because we we think it matters, you know, yeah. and, and, and to some point it does. You know, you did have a certain... Uh, t- Peace, peaceful time when uh, Trump was in uh, was the president because uh, the number of rockets coming out of North Korea, uh, there were no um, military movements by Putin. Mm-hmm. But again, it goes back to we have to look at it through his eyes. What? Why was he not doing anything based on the way Vladimir looks through it? And I think part of it was too it was the intangible that they thought about uh, uh, you know Al Qaeda and some of the other people and thought about George Bush is that he was a wild card like Ronald Reagan. You know I think. Trump was a wild card. They couldn't figure him out like Patton in World War II. That's what made him so dangerous is that there was no pattern. And But we have to look at it through the way our adversaries see the problem. And I think that will serve us better than this. Well, uh, I, I'm worried about what Xi Jinping, you know, I'm worried about 
what we say, like, uh, well, it's a special military operation. Well, there's no kind of pregnant. There's no, uh, as Dennis Miller said one time, uh, you know, when he converted over, he said, there's no such thing as Al-Qaeda. You know, you are Al-Qaeda, you are a terrorist. And in this case, this is not just a, in a small incursion or a special military operation. By all definition, it is an invasion. When you blow up capitals, when you blow up radar stations, when you shoot and kill people and their military people and your tanks and equipment and people have crossed a border. Um, I don't think it was called a special military operation when uh, uh, Hitler crossed the border into Poland and started World War II. That was called an invasion. Uh, absolutely. And this is called an invasion on the Great America Show without uh, reservation uh, and uh, our hesitation. Uh, but I am, as I say, I'm very concerned when I hear networks suddenly adjust their language. And I am concerned when I see a president who is uh, is obviously physically weakened and perhaps mentally as well uh, and not surrounded by the most experienced uh, national security people that uh, have ever inhabited that role in, in the White House. It's troubling. Now, to, and that brings up the, uh, the next real issue here. How concerned should Americans be about our own uh, networks, our own systems, our own uh, uh, servers, our own uh, cyber uh, universe? Uh, you should operate under the assumption that you are going to be attacked and you're going to be attacked by Russia and they're going to use all of their tradecraft and tools and um, malware in order to do this. So, but, but we should have been operating like that. There's not, you know, I, I get yeah, these so. requests, Lou, a lot, especially with this going on and they're saying, well, what should businesses do? I said, it's not what you, it's whatever you should be doing is what you should have already done six months ago. You shouldn't be waiting for a threat to decide, Ah, uh, you know, I'm going to put, well, I mean, I'm going to wait till my neighborhood's on fire before I decide to put sprinklers, you know, in my house. No, that, you know, before I put a smoke alarm in, you cannot build a commercial building without having the fire suppression system already built in because they're not going to wait for the problem and then react to it. So uh, I just, you know, these folks, it, it's one of those things is that you should always assume you're going to be attacked. You know why? Because you don't have to be in the country to do it. Putin does not have to uh, airdrop a, a platoon of Spetsnaz uh, special forces into the middle of Times Square for us to think, hey, we're under attack. He's right. doing it from the safety and security of Russia and doing it in ways that is like low intensity conflict. Um, you know, it's it's enough below the radar to where we don't trigger a massive response. But make no mistake, um, this this people should be you shouldn't go out and panic in the street and don't run around. And look, folks, we're not storming the beaches at Normandy here. You know, everybody can take a breath. Don't panic. Don't overreact. Go about with your daily lives, but be vigilant. You know, watch be for careful. those emails. Yeah, be so. careful. Look, it's like crossing the street. Uh, why should I? Well, Lou, be careful when you're crossing. Well, are you not careful every time you cross the street? I mean, you know, there's, there is a heightened sense of awareness to say, look, now with this going on, let's reinforce good practices. What about, what do we do for incident response? Who are our resources if something happens? Who do we call upon? Refresh that in people's mind, but to go out and say, well, let's buy a whole new set of software and install this because we really need to be prepared for an attack. You're a little late by then. I mean, that's stuff that should be going on. You should always assume you're being attacked and prepare for it. Prepare for the worst and, and hope for the best. Absolutely. I do want to go back to one thing you said. I do think it matters greatly who we have in the White House. And I do believe there is a huge difference in the uh, perceptions and the response of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. I cannot imagine uh, either of them doing as they have done 
First of all, Donald Trump would not have driven them together to create a strategic security alliance as they did uh, at the beginning of this month. Uh, he also uh, would have made very sure that there was going to be a response, whether the military liked it or not, uh, he would have demanded a, a response in this. I don't know what that response would be. We don't know what Biden's will be, but we do know that I, I really believe this, and I want to get your comment, and then we'll drop this, but uh, I really do think that that's a really critical issue is who we have as our commander-in-chief, who we have as our president. Um, no, no, I, I don't disagree with that. My, my the way I, Actually, I should clarify the context. What I meant is while Putin and, Xi, uh, Putin and Xi Jinping don't care who's in the White House, I mean, they, they, they don't care if it's Republican or Democrat. They base their courses of action based upon who is in the White House. So yeah. oh, okay. now would they prefer, yeah, would they prefer to have somebody else? You know, absolutely. But when Trump was in there, you know what Putin did? He bided his time. He, you know, he waited. He, um, you know, he, when, when your dictator for life is both Putin and she are, you can be patient and wait your yeah, time because you know it will come. Well, yeah, when you're a benevolent dictator, man, you know, it, it helps, you know, it's good because you can, uh, you can do what, and that's the thing is, see, here's the thing. We think in election cycles, well, what's going to happen in two years? What's going to happen in four or six years? Xi Jinping, uh, Vladimir Putin, they don't think that way. They think in terms of decades. Uh, just did an interview of, a, of a, a lady who was a CIA agent that became an FBI agent. We talked about a Chinese espionage case. They were in place for 28 years before they started their spying. 28 years. That's how long-term China thinks. Russia does this. Why are there more grandmasters out of Russia proportionally than any other country? Because in chess, because Russia gets strategy. They understand it's the long game. Yep. And that's kind of to our detriment. But that's why when you have a president like Trump, who is to them as a wild card, they adjust their, uh, uh, their actions accordingly. When you have somebody like Biden, then they adjust their actions accordingly to that. They, I mean, they care, but they don't care. But I mean, but what, to your point, as an American, I care who's in the White House. I care what kind of policies we have. Guess what? I'm an American citizen. I'm a taxpayer. I care what happens to the safety and security of the United States. So to me, it matters. To them, not so much because they will just do A, if it's a Republican, and B, if it's a Democrat. But at the end of the day, make no mistake, the end game, the ultimate goal is the same. How they get there will differ based upon who's in the White House. And if we can get the type of leadership that sets out clear markers that prevents them from obtaining these technologies or getting this revenue um, uh, or things like that, you can now have a long-term effect on their plans to where it, it interferes with what they thought they were going to do because they hope that we do every, something every two years or four years. Who, who uh, Depending on who controls Congress, depends on what kind of laws get passed, depends on how the military is funded, depends on what kind of things we look into. So that's their view. They, they sit back and they laugh and they go, hey, look, we don't have to worry about it every two years while you may change. We don't change. We have a plan. We stick to it. And that's why they tend to be more successful than us in some of these areas, because they have the patience to wait it out. Uh, patience uh, is a virtue. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how patient uh, Europe, NATO, and the United States are. Because now it's clear, just as today, in the midst of all of this, President Xi sent a uh, aircraft, eight fighters into, uh, eight or nine fighters into Taiwanese airspace. That was not an accident. That was a message. Uh, and I want to get your sense about which of these is the more accomplished uh, in cyber warfare, either China, 
or Russia and how powerful are they in combination and does sheer mass matter in cyber warfare? And when I talk about mass, I'm talking about what is a strategic combination of China and Russia. Yeah, you know, China has the numbers, but they don't have the techniques and the tactics that Russia does. Russia has been a long-term strategic player in, in this space. And um, while China, I mean, don't get me wrong, they both are tier one adversaries. They both are the top of the food chain. But Russia, there's all sorts of uh, research out there, and it shows Russian tactics versus Chinese tactics. When Russia gets into a network, in less than 10 minutes, they're able to take the next step and the next move inside that network. It might take China two hours to three hours to do that. So just from a tactic standpoint and a tradecraft standpoint and a skill standpoint, Russia is still, I think, head and shoulders above China. But China has the ability to control the supply chain, to put 25,000 people onto something where uh, we don't... Uh, we couldn't put 25,000 people onto cyber warfare. They could staff that up, you know, in a day. And so they can throw numbers on it. And so it's one of those things is they don't have to be good. They just have to be good enough with enough people together. They'll eventually get there, uh, you know, give a monkey a typewriter after a while. He will type a novel out. It may take a while, but China's, China's got the view of a thousand grains of sands, whatever it takes. We'll collect it a little bit at a time. So I would put Russia first. I would put, um, China, a very close second, and they're still, uh, and then North Korea uh, is third, and then kind of Iran is fourth, you know, a lot more distance between uh, three and four than there is two and three, but um, th- but right. that's the challenge. Guess what? You can have a small country like North Korea and Iran uh, be on equal footing almost when it comes to cyberspace. Yeah, and the, another example of it, a positive one, is uh, Estonia, uh, how capable they are, uh, correct? And that's why NATO located that uh, cyber center of uh, defense uh, center of excellence there for cyber defense in Estonia, because Estonia, like I said earlier, punches well above their weight. They are um, they are very good at what they do and they've learned their lessons. And guess what? They're doing it with far fewer people than Russia or China is. Well, I want to I want to get to just a a few more questions here before. uh, And I appreciate your time here, Morgan. But I, I really, I think we all need to understand uh, the capabilities of Ukraine in cyber warfare. We're concerned about them. Uh, you know that once the, this uh, conflict moves to urban warfare, uh, the Ukrainians should at least be able to uh, be significantly more successful in opposing the r- superior Russian forces. Uh, that may not be enough. It may be only at the margin, but they will be in a better position. What about cyber warfare? Do they have the capacity to both defend themselves and attack Russia, or would that be unthinkable? Uh, I don't think they're going to attack Russia, uh, and I think they, if it were just in and of themselves, no, they they don't have the capacity because they haven't really geared up for that. But the fortunate thing is, is they and they have become our proxy. You know, this is in a sense Afghanistan all over again. I hate to think of it that way. You know, the, the Mujahideen and um, the, you know they were a useful tool for them to be a proxy against Russia. But Ukraine is in a sense a proxy to Russia. We can give them stuff that they otherwise would not have and inflict the types of damage onto Russia that if we had did it directly, um, they would Putin would probably consider it an act of war, a very hostile action. So. I think he's trying to walk the line between invoking Article 5, especially in cyberspace, but he's walking a very fine line because 
He's saying that if you uh, if you deploy these sanctions, I will you know visit stuff on you you have never thought about before. He's just clearly put a stamp on it. He's saying I am responsible for this. Well, if that happens to a NATO country, does that invoke Article Five of the NATO doctrine? And will they respond militarily uh, in some fashion? I don't think it'd be kinetic, but I think they would amp up what they're doing from a cyber standpoint, and you would get uh, the 30 member NATO countries, you'd get the Five Eyes Alliance, maybe you'd get uh, all of this other capacity. Uh, I think he's got to be careful of the fights he picks right now, um, especially in cyberspace, because the, we can poke a hole in this myth of invulnerability. This is all Russia's, you know, this bad actor, nothing can happen to them. Trust me when I tell you this, they have got more holes in their armor than we do in ours. We just don't, it is against the law and journalists die in Russia when you talk about that stuff here. You get Pulitzers for it. There's a difference in the freedom of the press, right? So right. there is a huge difference in what gets reported in Russia, but make no mistake, if we want to take down their grid, they, you know, everybody's concerned about them taking down ours. You take down ours. I, if I were president, I'd say pull the trigger. You know, you hurt our people, we hurt your people. There has to be a penalty and it has to be just, it just can't be proportionate. It has to be use of force, which means I go one level above what you did and I make you hurt because I want to extract a price out of you that says, if you do it again, we will then visit something even worse upon you than what you did to us. They need to understand at some point uh, when you swing your fist or like I think Tom Clancy said, you know, if if, if you uh, kick a tiger in the hat, ass, you better have a plan for its claws. Yeah, well, no kidding. Uh, and uh, Putin uh, has kicked NATO and Europe uh, in the butt. And uh, it's to be seen uh, what other butts may be uh, in the, you know, in the line of his foot. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very worried about his ultimate goals here. Uh, and I think all of Europe should be. Uh, it's very difficult to, to discern exactly the next, uh, next steps. And we'll be like everyone else in the world, watching it carefully. Uh, let me ask you as we conclude here, uh, what uh, do you see next uh, in this, uh, do, do we have the capacity to actually witness this war up close through the internet, uh, through uh, the, the web, through the devices uh, in Ukraine? Yeah, I, I think that there are um, a lot of things being reported out where they're looking at our networks up, are they down? The, you've got um, computers that are detecting malware that are sending it back to be analyzed, and that's how we're finding out a lot of the stuff that's going on. Uh, some of these tools that are being used. So I think we're getting um, kind of a uh, peripheral look at what's going on, what's go what's really going on underneath. I don't know that we'll see that for a while. It's kind of like um, uh, when uh, the Stuxnet hit the Iran centrifuges and flame virus. It took a lot of time before uh, Operation Olympic Games became known. I mean, it, it will still take months and years to fully understand what they were doing. But I think we'll get it we'll, because there's more connectivity and more openness and because people want to know. I think as we start to see things happen, um, I think hopefully the Biden administration, the way they declassified some of this intelligence on the false flag and the invasion stuff, we should declassify and let people know so that they understand that Russia is paying a price. Because if I don't see anything happening to Russia, especially in the cyber realm, then I my assumption is we're, we're doing nothing. And you're going, well, we can't tell you we're doing stuff. I think in this case, we have to tell them something. We've got to tell people something is that here's what we did. Here's the effect it had. And if they do it again, um, here's what we're going to do. I think we need to lay down a marker, not just uh, with NATO, but we need to lay it down in cyberspace because if we don't stop him there, 
He will feel compelled to attack Germany. And if he can get away with that, he'll do the UK and he'll do us. There's absolutely no doubt Putin will uh, look to uh, right a bunch of perceived wrongs as long as this war is going on with Ukraine. Morgan, uh, as you as you say, uh, the the imperative for the United States is, at least in my judgment, partly because we have responded with rationalization when we have not created consequences, whether it be the Russians or whether it be the Chinese or non-state actors who've penetrated uh, our uh, our cyber world uh, and uh, walked away with amazing data and, uh, and, and amazing amounts of dollars. Uh, do you agree with that? China robs us of six to seven hundred billion dollars a year of intellectual property. They do what they call the three R's. They rob us of our technology, they replicate it, and then they replace us with it. Um, we have just, we've got to quit bending over for these guys. I mean, everybody, they hold so much of our debt, we get concerned. Well, we can't do this. You've got professional basketball players who apologize. John Sin apologizes in Chinese for offending the Chinese. Even though the Olympics were the worst example of human rights violations, what they did to our athletes and other athletes and what was going on over there is just atrocious. So um, I don't know the answer to that, Lou, other than I think somebody needs to pour uh, a bag of miracle grab in their miracle grow in their lap and grow a set and start pushing back and saying, sorry, this is it. No more. We got to start. It, it will take time. And that's why we need patience, Lou. It will take time, but we've got to start carving out energy independence again. We got to start carving out supply chain again. We got to start carving out our financial situation again. That will not happen if we change our course in the river every two years. We've got to have a long term strategy that everybody can get behind. Well said, as we would expect. Morgan Wright, we thank you for uh, spending this time with us and uh, giving us your insight and perspective uh, and, and sharing your knowledge with us. We thank you so much. Uh, I want to just say uh, to you, uh, you, you know, you've been eloquent and informative and God bless you. Uh, and we conclude with always on this broadcast, uh, final words from our guest. Um, Lou, I'm, I'm at a loss because, uh, you know, first of all, I want to say thank you because all the times we've been on the air together over the years, You've always looked at the issues, and I mean, we've got to get down to the heart of the issues, um, and I think this is one of those times. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here, but I will tell you, this this should tell people more than anything else is that if you don't think there's a real danger out there, if you don't think there's a real threat out there, not just from Russia, but China will use this now as a playbook for how to do this and get away with it. If we don't start putting people in positions of power who are willing to hold themselves accountable as well as these adversaries, then this situation will get worse before it gets better. And it may get to a point where we cannot recover from it. And we will constantly be a debtor nation with our head in the jaws of a tiger, leaving us unable to negotiate. Well, I assure you, Morgan, uh, we will be committed on this podcast to precisely those issues, uh, national security and looking to a, for, uh, a future. Uh, that includes the United States uh, as preeminent among uh, powers. Uh, Morgan, thanks so much for being with us. I hope you'll join us here again soon. Great talking with Anytime, you, Anytime, sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And God bless you for listening and being with us. And God bless America. Join us again tomorrow for the Great America podcast. Stay in the fight. Truth, justice, and the American way will prevail against all enemies, against all odds. 
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.